Hey, on today's episode, we're going to cover a topic that is not specifically related to plants or health or farming or agriculture, but to society as a whole. It's about how to make workplaces more diverse, more inclusive, more fair, and more loving. And the topic really is about the, the field of diversity, inclusion, and equity, which is a, uh, a part of, it's been a part of human resources, trying to sort of check boxes, like how do we get enough women? How do we get enough people of color? How do we get enough representation of underrepresented and marginalized groups? And up till now, it hasn't been done very well. Uh, according to research from the organization that my guest uh, leads, she, her name is Jennifer McCollum. She's the CEO of Linkage Inc., which is a leadership development organization that's specifically been working on women's leadership for the past two and a half decades. And more recently, um, inclusion uh, on the basis of race, sexual orientation and all the other ways in which people can be marginalized. Um, American businesses spend $8 billion a year trying to create diverse workforces, and what we do doesn't work. Um, unconscious bias training, um, fun activities where people of different backgrounds are thrown together, they tend to make things worse. And, and the people who are doing them are incredibly well-meaning. It's not like they're, they don't have the best interests of the world and their clients at heart. It's just there hasn't been the data to really look at it until Linkage looked at their database. They have uh, a million leaders who get evaluated and they can correlate that with corporate outcomes. And they just have this incredible range of data on what actually works to create environments, to create organizations that really honor all the people who work there. And interestingly, the organizations that do that the best and the leaders who do that the best make the most money, have the lowest turnover, have the highest morale. So it's really a win, 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 which is which makes it incredible that people aren't doing it in the same way people are familiar with this podcast might think we know that prevention and lifestyle could save billions, trillions of dollars on healthcare. Why aren't we doing it? It's kind of the same issue. So today I talk with the high powered, incredibly energetic, brilliant, passionate, compassionate CEO of Linkage Inc., Jennifer McCollum. And we talk about all these issues and make sure you catch the show notes today because there's a, a video. It's up on YouTube and I'll link to it in the show notes, which is plantyourself.com slash four, five, six. All right. Without further ado, Jennifer McCollum, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Howie, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, let's let's get right into it. We're going to talk today about, I guess, uh, diversity, um, equity, inclusion, and let's let's start with kind of your your story. Um, tell us like who, who you are, what you do, and how you came to care and be involved in these in these issues. My story. Oh, what a nice broad question to start with. So I'll, I'll tell you my story just coming to Linkage as the CEO three years ago. I had a background in building and growing and managing leadership businesses. And I have always had a huge place in my heart for the advancement of women. 20 years ago, I was leading you know, pro bono visioning um, webinars and visioning, well, not webinars back then, visioning workshops, live workshops for women to help them get clear on their purpose and clear on their vision. 
And that's expanded over, the t- over time to focus on all forms of underrepresentation. I, I joined Linkage three years ago. And one of the things that drew me to Linkage was 30 years of data in the leadership space. And the data could tell us what do the best leaders do? And other data sets told us, what will it take to advance women leaders? And I was so excited about the opportunity to dig into those data sets, surface insights, create frameworks and products and services to support the advancement of women and to help all leaders become more inclusive and more effective. Gotcha. I'm, I'm curious about, um, and maybe you could like, uh, introduce the answer to this question with just describing linkage a little bit for people who may not know about it, but there have been so many books on leadership. And there have been books on like data and corporate effectiveness from, um, you know, Tom Peters to Jim Collins, Good to Great and all that. What, what, what was missing from those data sets or those discussions that Linkage had or that you felt was, uh, was you know, was important and was missing in the conversation about underrep- changing underrepresentation? Yeah, so Linkage is a leadership development firm. We've been around for about 33 years. And over those 30 years, we've looked at what is it that the best leaders do? So I'll get to inclusion, but it actually starts a big giant step back with what we call purposeful leadership. So Linkage has about a million leaders in our database, and that includes the leaders themselves plus um, about each leader has about 10 raters, whether it's their peers or their managers. So a typical 360 uh, direct reports. And as we, uh, over the years, tried to answer the question again and again and again, because it evolves, of course, the question we were asking was, what is it that the best leaders do? And about six years ago, we surfaced a model called purposeful leadership. And I can go deeper into that model, but the basics uh, are that leaders make commitments to their stakeholders. In fact, those are the very commitments that their stakeholders expect of them. And those uh, very quickly are leaders um, inspire, they engage, they innovate, they achieve. And the last one is called become. And become is that inner path to leadership. That's making the commitment and the self-awareness to become better every single day. So that's purposeful leadership. We can talk more about that if you'd like. But just about two years ago, we looked into that data set and said, let's look of the 50 or so items that we measure. Let's isolate the ones that are very specific about inclusive leadership. And there were about 16 of those. And when we pulled up those 16 and we correlated them to what the most effective leaders do, the correlation was so shocking to us that Um, And I'm not so much of a data nerd, but it was a 0.92 correlation, which basically means if you just look at inclusive leadership behaviors standalone, you can almost guarantee whether or not that leader will be effective. That's how powerful inclusive leadership is. So I guess inclusion is is a buzzword, right? These days, Um, it's one of the boxes that companies have to check off. What's, What's the definition of inclusion, like let's say the the standard HR definition, and how do you understand it? Well, it's funny, and actually, it's even bigger than that now because there are words like belonging, and there are words like equity, 
And they all are slightly different. So if you think about, let's just think about diversity first. Um, diversity is largely about the numbers. It's about the representation in the demographics. And many companies are really strongly and squarely focused there. It's just about getting in the right gender and race and you know, other forms of disability, for example. The challenge with that is it doesn't necessarily foster inclusion. And inclusion is about how you leverage that diverse talent. And my favorite, I don't know if you've heard of, um, she's an inclusion strategist. She's actually a social psychologist named Verna Myers. Have you, have you heard of her? Nope. All right. So Verna, I don't, I don't know her personally, but one of the things that she wrote is diversity is just inviting everyone to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Do I feel like I belong? And that's, and I love that because that's really where we're trying to shift the focus. Other things like equity are um, all, is everyone treated equally in terms of pay, in terms of promotion opportunity, in terms of stretch assignments. And then belonging is that intent to stay because I feel like my uniqueness is completely valued and accepted and I can be completely myself. I feel like I belong here. Mm. Yeah. So on, on the one hand, this is like the simplest thing in the world, <laughs> right? You know, like, like when you want to like treat people, that, treat people fairly, and, and treat people like humans and don't discriminate. And yet it's the most complicated thing in the world as we try to, to bring it into our lives, into our society, into the workplace. Um, I think one of the things that impressed me about your work and all the, you know, the white papers you sent me in the books is that um, in these organizations, you're trying to do like a heavier lift <laughs> on behalf of society. <laughs> it's, it's, funny, it's funny that you say heavier lift on behalf of society. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that has maybe awakened us a little bit more in 2020 going into 2021 than maybe the many, many decades before, because this isn't a new concept. As you said, we've been talking about diversity and inclusion for quite some time. I think the awakening that happened, even for me, was that those of us who have tended to be in the, uh, you know, more well-represented, so whether it's our race, we both are white, uh, whether it's your gender, you are male, those of us who are in um, kind of the over-representation, at least in the corporate world, haven't really had that depth of awareness until, um, well, for, and I'll just speak for me personally, last year, as I saw um, the Black Lives Matter movement happen, as we talked about it inside my organization, as I talked about it with friends who are leaders and are of a different race, my Black friends, what I slowly started to realize was I thought I understood their perspective. I thought I could put myself in their shoes, and really I couldn't. And the conversation and the awareness is becoming much more front and center. And we're actually seeing a lot of corporate movement now that I hadn't seen before. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, and for, for me over the past several years, um, you know, I, I grew up where if I, if I looked at a, at a, um, a, po a business poster gathering and there were all the speakers and they were all white men of a certain age, like nothing that didn't trigger anything in me. There was nothing like that was default, normal, right. right? And it's taken a long time 
for me to look at that and say, oh, there's something missing there. There's a lot missing there. Um, and actually the way I got there was not easy. It was, you know, in many ways painful. In many ways, it was the education um, hurts, right? In a, in a certain way, if you know, if you know what I mean. And it, it, you know, it seems to me that if that's what it takes, like, I don't know that everybody, all the white men I know, or the white women, you know, the um, sort of upper middle class can go to university. Are we all willing to do that work? Well, I'm, I'm actually glad you started with what we can do, um, because oftentimes we're looking to the other to help educate us. And I love what you said. I, I know one of the things I've been doing, and just again, this is just in the last years. You know, I've got an entire stack of books here that I'm working my way through to do my own learning. So White Fragility is the one I have I'm almost finished with. Uh, difficult Conversations with a Black Man is the next one I'm going to. So what is the work I need to do? Um, the other thing that's a little bit uncomfortable, especially as you said, so those of us who are educated, who maybe grew up with more with more privilege, uh, certainly those of us who are white, how do we actually get in touch with our privilege? What does privilege even mean? And I'll give you a quick example on uh, Juneteenth. I didn't even know what Juneteenth was last year, but on Juneteenth, um, do you, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but I actually asked my two of my black um, corporate colleagues and friends, I asked if they would join me on a webinar so that, and we had about a thousand people um, sign in. And we were talking about how, if and how this feels different. And they talked about their experience as black, uh, black people growing up, black people in the workforce. And now that they're well-established in their careers, does it feel different at this stage? But the story that's the most interesting part is the preparation for that story. Um, there was a lot of discomfort in, you know, I asked them, for example, how should I refer to you? Should I refer to you as African-American or as black? And um, they turned back to me and said, well, um, black is fine. How should we refer to you, white or Caucasian? And my first thought was, nobody's ever asked me that question. And why is that? It's because the default is the white race. When someone asked me that, it was kind of disconcerting. Um, the next thing that happened was I asked about their stories. I said, tell me a couple stories of how you were challenged early on in your career. And my whole frame was around, look, as a white woman, you know, woman is very underrepresented in the corporate executive ranks. So I do know what it feels like to be underrepresented. That was my frame going into the conversation. But as my black female colleague started telling me her stories, I realized that our experience coming into the workforce, moving up in the workforce was so incredibly different that any assumptions I had about our path being similar were just incorrect. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're, for you personally, um, were, were there moments in which you were sort of in sort of in uh, like uncomfortable in a little bit of turmoil because you, you, you are, I think, you are privileged enough to not have to deal with any of that, right? You could go through your entire career being very successful and, and never having to experience that sort of unpleasantness, self-doubt, um, wondering how much of your success is due to the role of a dice, when, you know, of, 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 of uh, external, external characteristics. Um, 
Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, we're, we're talking right now about primarily race, but I think gender is also what linkage specializes in. I, our, our first 25 years is actually looking at the role of women in the workplace and how we could support their advancement. And so what's interesting now is looking at what we call intersectionality. When you look at gender and race combined, the, the um, absolute increase in challenge and bias, and that's what I'm starting to get more familiar with. So I'll give you another example with, um, with Kamala Harris. And you might have, you might have noticed um, in the vice presidential debate with Mike Pence, like aside from the fly on his head, and regardless of what you know, what whom you were going to vote for, what was fascinating to me was watching this incredible woman, well-educated woman, really try to navigate the expectations and role of being a leader. So the expectations and the bias there is you need to be strong and you need to be assertive and you need to be confident. And so she was doing that well and she was trying to put him in his place if she felt like he was interrupting him. But at the same time, she was trying to fulfill the role and expectations and bias of being a woman. So you saw her um, pausing and nodding and, you know, asking for permission, you know, please listen, please. She was smiling a lot. Mm -hmm. And then you overlay race on top of that. So a woman who's got um, both, you know, has, has multicultural heritage coming to the table. And I just was watching the entire time thinking when you layer women or woman plus race, um, plus leader, it's so difficult. And so, yes, I've experienced it as a woman leader, um, but not when you layer that race on, it's, it's quite a bit dif- more difficult. Mm, um, so one of the things that I learned from the material you sent me is there's, you know, there's now like, I guess we call it, it's a DIE or D D. Diversity inclusion. How do we? How, what's the acronym? Well, we... so there's many different acronyms, but DEI tends to be one that's used a lot now. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay, so there's a lot of money being spent on that, um, and you mentioned, you know, uh, Robin DiAngelo's white fragility, and she's one of the, you know, the pioneers in sort of anti-bias or sensitivity sorts of training. And the th- one thing you discovered is that a lot of this, almost all of it. <laughs> is wasted, right? It doesn't actually achieve outcomes. And you have a beautiful little chart where, you, where on the one side, like what, what these um, programs are trying to accomplish versus what you think is possible and necessary. Can you talk a little bit about the state of DEI? Yeah, I'm actually gonna, and I wanna just, I wanna get it right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it up and give the very specifics around it because this is something that we just did um, this, this last year. So let me take a step back. Uh, so we'd already proven uh, in our research a couple years ago that the role of inclusive behaviors in leaders absolutely correlate to how effective they are. Then we wanted to look at last year, well, let's look at the organizations. So, you know, we as leaders make up organizations, but organizations, you know, operate as systems. And we know, and your, your number is right, $8 billion is being spent every single year in this in this country on on what we'll call inclusion initiatives, and um, some of the more common ones are things like unconscious bias training, or like we talked about before, making sure that there's diversity numbers both in the organization and on the teams. Um, 
we looked at things like employee resource groups. Those are very well-funded and, and oftentimes a lot of executives will defer to the uh, those what they're called ERGs, employee resource groups, to come up with ideas about how we can create greater inclusion in the organization. But I had actually a, a Black executive tell me when I spoke to her the other day, she's like, you know, um, that's like asking the oppressed to fix the oppressor. And so you're relegating um, a lot of you know, responsibility to fix the inclusion problems to the people who are feeling like they're not included. So we wanted to take a look at that. And we studied 55 drivers of inclusion, and we found that almost none of what is being spent, like the $8 billion, almost none of it is actually creating any type of impact at all when it comes to the perception of inclusion at organizations. And in fact, some of the things like bringing people together and kind of the, the forced fun, like social outings are actually hurting inclusion. Now, does that mean you shouldn't bring people together? No, not at all. But you need to acknowledge that when you're pulling people together in a social environment, those who are underrepresented aren't necessarily going to feel included. And so you need to be really careful about how you structure those types of things. Okay, so that's everything we're doing wrong. Do you want me to tell you what we need to do? <laughs> yes, yes, please. <laughs> so, you know, and that's really frustrating, right? Because when we tell our D&I professionals, by the way, and we have a lot of compassion for them, um, they tend to be, they tend to sit in HR. They, their their um, function tends to be um, kind of away from this, the, the, the HR, you know, executive development or learning and development. And they're trying really hard with very little budget and very little staff and very little acknowledgement and support from executives, from the executive team. What they're doing doesn't tend to be aligned to corporate strategy. So we have a lot of compassion to DNI executives. We're trying to help them. So here's what we found. There are three things that rise to the top when it comes to driving inclusion in organizations. And you're going to laugh because they seem simple, but they're so hard. Uh, and the first is about the executives. Executives have to lead by example. They have to be welcoming and equitable and fair. So if the executives, men or women, believe that inclusion can be solved from that function over there or from employee resource groups over there, then they themselves aren't necessarily leading by example. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Any, any thoughts on that before I move on? Yeah, I'd love to sort of like pause and break these down because they're so fascinating. And, you know, I think one of the one of the structural problems is that there's a lot of research showing that as people become more powerful, they become less empathetic. Mm. Now, not not as a slam on them, but simply it's almost like a brain circuit. Like evolutionarily, when you're at the top, you get to spend more energy going and chasing resources for your tribe than worrying about how you appear to other members of the tribe. And especially, you know, I, I went to Princeton, graduated in, in the late 80s, and I saw like how we were being groomed. Mm. And, I've, and I've seen, you know, several, you know, a whole bunch of my classmates are in like top leadership positions all over the world and just kind of like, we, you know, we are great. We did it all on our own. We didn't get any, we worked hard and we did, right? Like, you know, there's, 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 that, but there's a, there's a merit story. And we grew up surrounded by people like us. And it's like, for, there's all these structural issues that I think make it hard for 
leaders, for executives who've grown up in a certain circle to, to really embody that kind of inclusion, empathy. And it, you know, it really involves like backwashing your, your mindset to some extent and really becoming um, sensitive to other experiences. How, how, do you, yeah, you, how do you do that? You, I mean, you, you've absolutely nailed it. I, and I, I, if I were to ask you, you know, what is the makeup of those super successful Princeton grads who have leadership roles all over the world? My guess is most, not all, are probably going to be white men who, um, who, whom you were friends with in school. Is that, is that fair? Except for the friends within school part. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was okay, shy. So maybe you weren't friends with them. And, and I think, again, I, this is not disparaging at all. This is human nature um, that we surround ourselves with people we like who tend to be like us. And dispelling the like us piece um, is hard because just like you said, people, we, you know, we, we are all accustomed to believe that we have gotten there on our own merit. But when you think about what us means, um, the people above us were the ones that also looked like us and were socializing or networking or creating opportunities for like, come along with this really challenging assignment and I'm going to teach you how it's done. And so we had access, whether it was through summer school internships, all the way through our first jobs and through, and through our first promotions, we had access to that like us. And so I think it's interesting when we stop and say, well, wait a minute, did I earn it? Probably. I mean, there was definitely some earned privilege. Uh, we, we, we went to, but how did we get there? Who helped us get there? Whether it was our upbringing, our financial, um, you know, our financial abilities or our network, the like us piece gave us a significant advantage that a lot of others didn't have. Right. You know, and I think just it's, it's not at all the same thing, but in terms of like, I made my, my sort of my business move was when I got the opportunity to write a for dummies book about uh, um, digital marketing strategy. And I say, I wrote a great book. <laughs> and the only reason I got to write that book is that the guy who had written the previous version was friends with my chiropractor. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Like, so yeah, so the, op- you know, yeah, I earned it. I did a good job. And the opportunity came up totally by chance. And when we're talking about race and class and gender, it's not by chance, it's, it's systematic that so many more opportunities come my way. That's right. And it's so, and it's, it, what is so wonderful is that you acknowledge that. And I think that's what seems to be changing. Now, the question is, will it change fast enough? Um, because I think the other thing that I'm starting to learn about um, is that there is such a strong business case. It is irrefutable. I mean, you look at all of the studies about the benefits to the corporate results uh, and to the employee results when you have diversity in your organization, when people feel like they're included. And if you look at mixed, uh, if you look at gender or race, no matter how you cut it, everything is good when you have those, those, um, you know, all of those things together. You can look at revenue, you can look at profit, you can look at faster decision-making, you look at innovation. And so one of the questions I've been asking myself and a lot of people that I talk to is, well, it's, if it's so obvious, if the business case is so obvious, why aren't we doing it? And so I think the, the thing I'm starting to, to explore a little bit more is 
What are those invisible forces? They may be conscious, they may be unconscious, but if the invisible forces are stronger than the forces for change, nothing is going to change. It's not a surprise that if you look at the, even the gender statistics across the last decade, um, and if you're looking at you know, the less than 5% of women CEOs um, in the Fortune 500, all the way down to the 20% in the C-suite, once they start, they start their careers 50-50. Actually, more women are leaving college and starting careers now than men. But women are dropping out of the workforce at the same rates they were before. Why is that? And the only thing, and then race is the same, is that the invisible forces are more powerful than the forces of change. And that's what I'm committed to changing. Is it that they're more powerful because they're invisible? And that's actually, that's a great question. And it actually is what is making me excited about what we saw last year with this convergence of crises. So the pandemic uh, started us off with everybody working from home now kind of on an equal playing field in a remote situation where you could actually see like the childcare and the animals and the, and, and the impact that that had disproportionately on women. And so women, uh, you may know, have left the workforce and lost uh, 2 million more jobs than men. And it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge risk what's happened in the pandemic to see, will women come back? Um, so that was the first thing. Then Black Lives Matter and the race riots, and that was another awakening. And so with just those two things, forget the economic and the, and, the, and the crises of the environment, if you just looked at those two things, it has created an awakening that is allowing for the conversation. The conversation mm-hmm. now is, so the invisible is being made visible. Now mm-hmm. the question becomes, now that it's visible, are we committed to change? And that's going to take all of us, but especially those of us in positions of power and influence. And often those are white men because 80% of the C-suite in our country is white men. And so we need the white men as allies, as sponsors, as mentors, and as coaches. And that's a whole another conversation. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this, in the idea of, of leverage of the data around stock price, success, profits, because like the, the conversation in the public sphere is, you know, let's, let's say about reparations. Because there's a lot of white people who are not doing very well these days. And they're, so they're thinking, well, so you're going to take something away from me and give it to somebody else, right? So it becomes a very zero-sum game. And- I would love to talk about that. Um, okay. You know, there was, there was data that came out in the, around... 2015 that said, you know, there is a dearth of leaders. If you look at the statistics of the boomers leaving the workforce, the influx of uh, the millennials and then Gen Z, millennials are almost half of the workforce right now. Uh, white, white people are 58% of the workforce right now. Um, and because of the boomers retiring, the at least you know according to the data about five years ago, there are more leadership roles than can be filled by the leaders we have today. And so part of the challenge, I think, is this scarcity mentality is, you know, and I, I you know, I hear it all the time. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of a running joke in, in my family, like both of my husband and I work. And he said, you know, he's he's in the process of transitioning jobs. And he said, gosh, I don't it doesn't look good for me. Like I'm I'm not a woman and I'm not black and I, you know, I don't have any underrepresented you know, piece of me like I'm not going to find a job. And I just, you know, I kind of left and I said, you know there are more jobs to be had than leaders to fill them. So the scarcity mentality isn't going to help anyone. Um, I'll, I, can I tell you another story about how we can use our privilege 
Yes, please. <laughs> so um, I'm going to tell the story of Eddie, and you may know Eddie Turner. He's a he's a good friend. Love Eddie, um, love Eddie, and he does a lot of what you do on uh, you know lots of researching and podcasting and webcasting. He's an amazing facilitator and amazing coach, and I've worked with him uh, across a couple of projects. He was one of the two that I invited for the Juneteenth webinar. I invited him to tell his stories. In advance, because we had a thousand people sign up within a few minutes, somehow a Wall Street Journal reporter named Patrick found out about our webinar. And he contacted me as I was hosting it. And he said, not only do I want to attend, but I actually want to interview you before the webinar because it's it's going to be the you know it's on Juneteenth. We're talking about you know why are a thousand people coming to hear these stories? It was in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests, and at that moment I had a choice. I I hey I, I wanted to be in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and I, I thought it would be good for me personally. I thought it would be good for our company. Um, and then uh, my marketing director said, you know Jennifer, like I actually think it would be better if. Bev and Eddie were to speak to the journalist. And it was like this huge aha of like, well, yeah, how can, how can I use, in this case, my privilege as the position of power and influence to open it up to uh, Eddie, who may not have had the chance to be in the Wall Street Journal. So I called him up and I said, hey, let's do it together. And what happened was we both were in the Wall Street Journal. Both of our pictures were there. It was part of a bigger story. But he came to me later and he said, you know how much I appreciate that. He said, when I was in the Wall Street Journal, people started calling and emailing me, people I hadn't heard from in decades. Thank you for doing that. And honestly, like that's the kind of thing. It, it didn't take a lot of effort. It meant a lot to him. It meant a lot to me too. And we both learned from it. Mm, right. That's beautiful. Um, okay. So um where were where something else I want to um, so yeah so that we were talking about um, this idea that it's actually in your interest to make a more inclusive right in, in, in my field you know I work with people around their health and like it's the same sort of thing like clearly improving your diet and your exercise and all this is going to make you happier and healthier and you know look better and feel better so, like, immense benefits. And yet there are pains associated with making the shift and with the first part of the journey. And I'm wondering, like, like in an organization in which everybody is, is like white male or Princeton grad or the, you know, that sort of thing, there, there doesn't have to be any of that discomfort. I don't have to worry about what I say right. or... Um, right. I was, I was, I was talking to a friend yesterday. We were, you know, I'm just finishing a manuscript with Peter Bregman and we're going over, like, did we do anything accidentally offensive? And a friend of mine told, great. You asked that question, actually. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're getting feedback from people. Um, but a friend who told the story when he, he, he was giving a talk and he was out West and there was a, um, a couple of Native American business people in the room, and he was talking about entrepreneurship. And um, he mentioned, like, you know, but the pioneers end up with arrows in their back. And after, as soon as he said it, it's like, oh my god! Like, you know what? That's okay. It's okay as long as you acknowledge it and 
just talk about it. And I think I'm trying to get more comfortable there. So I'll get, I'll tell you one, another story. And then I'd like to get to the other two things that yeah. we can all do to drive inclusion in organizations. I realized we stopped at the executives and then got on a great conversation. Um, so one more story about kind of inadvertently offensive. And we actually call those things if, if we're the recipient of those things. And I certainly, as a woman and many of my friends, either women or, um, you know, or of the non-white race have thousands of these stories. But what's interesting is they tend to happen less as you get up the corporate ladder and with awareness, but they still happen all the time. So here's the story. Uh, it was about two months ago and I was invited to a CEO forum um, where I don't know, about 150 different CEOs were going to come together to talk about really cool things. Um, and when we when we got onto the Zoom, we were immediately broken into groups by what was uh, driving your interest. For me, it was how do we overcome the, the trauma of 2020 and drive strategic innovation for 2021? And it was right in the midst of business planning. I was super excited about it. Show up in a Zoom room with eight people. Uh, one was the facilitator. It was a white male uh, facilitator. He was a CEO coach, fantastic guy. There were uh, five white male CEOs. Actually, one was Latin. And then there were two women CEOs. And, you know, just typical. And I was brand new. I had been invited to, to participate, didn't know anyone, didn't know the organization. So the facilitator says, uh, okay, so the only thing we need is we need uh, we need someone to take notes so that that person's going to report out when we get back. And I held my breath and I went, I know what's going to happen next. Sure enough, one of the male CEOs looked right at me on the camera and said, I nominate Jennifer to take the notes. And I said, you know, I'm not really comfortable doing that. This isn't even my gig. I don't know anybody here. I just came to observe. And no, you know, I'm I, I'm not going to do it. And you know, I said it nicely. So then I kind of, I just paused again and I knew exactly what was going to happen. And do you know? Um, no. He turned to the other woman and okay. said, then, oh, then, oh. And Lisa, will you take the notes? And it was so predictable and so unconscious on his part, probably. Um, and Lisa said, yes, I'll take the notes. No problem. And I found myself kind of going down this spiral of, you know, why is it that there have been so many meetings of my life where I've been asked to take the notes or the men will say, just my handwriting's really bad. And now on Zoom, you can't say my handwriting's really bad anymore. But here's the problem. I didn't stop. And I didn't say, hey, like John, so interesting. Like, I don't even know you guys, but, but notice what just happened. And like very objectively and very just in out of curiosity, I could have stopped and just talked about it, mm -hmm. but I didn't. I didn't because I didn't feel safe. I didn't know these people. But what ended up happening with me is I kind of went into a spiral where I was angry. I wasn't listening. I was making assumptions about the men. And it actually impacted my experience negatively. And that was my fault. So anyway, that's a story called microaggressions I uh, of a microaggression. But right. I can't remember well, how we started that. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to ask because you said, you know, you, you started by saying, and, and we call it, and then you didn't name it. But I, was, I took a note saying microaggression, thinking you were going to have a different name because microaggression implies aggression, right? Like there's some intent. And like in your, you know, your experience of... I don't know. That's, that's so like, I'll tell you my, my story. Like I'm lucky that this happened to me when I was 24, I was uh, teaching at a private day school and I was, 
doing a, a class for the parents, like a lunch and learn on stress, which had been one of my you know, um, topics. And I was trying to explain something about physiology or fight or flight. And I had a, like a tennis ball as a prop. And I wanted to talk about like instant reactions. And so I, threw the, I, I just picked up the ball and I threw it to somebody in the audience. And it was lunch and learn in the late eighties. And almost everybody at the lunch and learn were women. And there was one man and guess who I threw the ball to. I'm just like, like 90 to one. It, and, and as soon as I threw it, I'm like, I got to call myself out here because that was just the most sexist thing I've ever noticed myself <laughs> doing. And I'm really embarrassed. But I actually, just this, what I love about the story is that, and I hope you did, like you called yourself out. And, and so one of the things I'm trying to do a little bit better job of is when I, you know, when it's brought to my attention to be so thankful um, and it did. It's and let me just correct something. Microaggressions aren't necessarily aggressive. Microaggressions are those thousand cuts that tend to happen very unconsciously every single day. So always being asked to take the notes as an example. Maybe being ignored in meetings. Um, many meetings where I'm the only woman and and the men are getting asked for their opinion and I'm the last one. And so those are things that many women and um, many people of color can talk about through their entire careers. Most white people, especially white men, are just blissfully unaware. And that's why it's a microaggression. Um, but you can get over those things when you become aware of them through what's called microaffirmations. And that's doing things kind of like what you did. You know what? I threw the ball to the man, but hey, Sally, I'm throwing it to you because you know what? Women can catch balls too. And you know what, Jane? I actually want to hear from you. So before Mike's going to talk, I want to hear Jane's perspective. All right, Mike, I want you to build on Jane's perspective. That was a really good point. I'm going to take the notes. You know why? I'm working on my handwriting. Like those are all the types of things for that you that you can do or we can do. And they're called microaffirmations. Right. And, you know, and the thing about micro affirmations, we, I've never heard the term before, but me calling myself out was infinitely less scary to me than waiting for a woman to say, hey, you jerk. <laughs> right. Or did you notice what you did? Like, like that could, at, at, at the tender age of 24, that could have like melted me, like sent me into a shame spiral of being called out. And yet there's, there had to be some, somehow something had to have gotten through my thick skull for me to even notice. Yeah. Well, and now maybe you're at the tender age of, I don't know, 34 or 44. But if that were to happen today, uh, what would you do? Um, you know, what the difference is the, like, the, there's a whole bunch of inner work that I've done with myself on myself and it's being, it's understanding that this feeling like I am about to not exist anymore like this painful feeling of shame is okay. And it feels, you know, and it, it, it was a lot of, it's a lot of work and it's ongoing work and, you know, being called out and like, you know, and discovering that bracing for it doesn't help, but actually like, oh gosh, you know, thank you for telling me that. Cause I don't want to have that impact. Yeah. Like that's, that's a painful thing. And I only, I only know what's on, you know, I do it on what's on like, because I like what's on the other side. I eat healthy because I like what's on the other side. I lift weights because I like what's on the other side, but it doesn't mean that I enjoy doing those things all the time. Yeah. But what I love about what you're talking about, Howie, is that kind of over the course of time, I think it sounds like through 
very strong intention and through self-awareness and through self-study and maybe through accepting feedback, you actually are naturally operating more and more, it sounds like, as an inclusive leader. And I'll give you just a couple little um, little points here. We, we took those 16 inclusive leadership behaviors and we rolled them up into a model that we call Delta, just to have something simple to remember. And the D in Delta stands for discusses respectfully and honestly. So whether you're calling yourself out or whether someone calls it out and, and brings it to your awareness, just having that discussion respectfully and honestly is a way to foster inclusion. Um, there's another one. The, the T in Delta is tr- being very transparent and open. If I would have been operating transparently in the meeting that I told you about, I could have found a really easy way to talk about it and maybe even used humor. And I think everybody would have benefited, but I didn't do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was my lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to talk about that a little while because you said, you know, when you told the story, you said, and that was my fault. And I had a, I had an immediate reaction to argue with you, <laughs> right? Like, I'm, like I wanted to defend you to yourself. Um, there, was, there was an article I just read in Harvard Business Review um, called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. I don't know I if you saw, you saw that. And it's like, like for you to take responsibility for having to, like, I can't imagine how exhausting it must be to either every moment say, do I let this slide or do I stand up? Um, Like, you know, a lot of your work is, is with women for women. And part of, part of me is saying that's so unfair that you that women have to bear the brunt or that black people or uh, Asian Americans, you know, have to bear the brunt of fixing it. Yeah, it, it absolutely is unfair. Um, And the only thing that all of us can control is our response. And so when I say it was my fault, the incident wasn't my fault at all. My response to it, I think I would have done it differently next time. But I think what you are hitting on is actually really important to talk about for a moment. It's what's the responsibility for the individuals, whether it's women or whether it's people of color, because we have been disadvantaged because of the like me um, kind of syndrome that we talked about earlier. And one of the things we can take accountability for, but it's even better if your organization invests, is our own development. And so we do have standalone programs for women because we know that women face unique hurdles and we can help them overcome those hurdles. We also work with clients like Synchrony who who have run for many, many years, not only standalone women's programs, but now even at the higher level, high potential programs for people of color. And that's because they have said enough. We are are focusing on our um, black population and our Latin population, and we are going to disproportionately invest in them at this level. We're gonna invest in our women at this level. And so we're running programs with them. So individual development is one thing that we can step into and not necessarily control from a financial perspective, but fully engage in. Mm -hmm. What you're getting at though, is what I call the organizational surround. When we say who is responsible, it is the decision makers and influencers in people of power that have to do the hard lifting of what is the culture that we're creating so that we are all equally valued. We all feel like we belong. What are your talent systems? Are they equitable? Are they fair? And finally, your own executive action and commitment 
are you actually um, doing more than giving this lip service? Are you investing? Are you working on yourself? Are you leading by example? And I'm starting to see more of that. It brings to mind a phrase that I got from a um, friend, Peter Bregman, who wrote a book called Leading with Emotional Courage. And that like what is required of leaders who want to be good at this is emotional courage because we're going to get it wrong again and again and again. I'm going to accidentally turn to the woman to take notes, uh, right? You're right. We're all going to have those impulses. And if we're, if we're not willing to feel wrong and acknowledge it and get feedback and make amends, it's like, like the, 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 the DNI, like there's this huge opportunity to grow leaders with this kind of courage. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's what actually gives me hope. Uh, we, I, I do want to get to the other two things because it's yeah. part of that emotional courage as well. And it kind of takes it down from me. We're all not executives, right? So when I talk about executives being, you know, welcoming and fair and equitable, like let's just take it down to the next notch. And the next notch is, is all of us as leaders. So whether we're formal leaders and managing a team or informal leaders and uh, managing projects, the role of the leader is to try to discover uh, and learn the unique superpowers, we call them, of the individuals on that team. Identify them, value them, and leverage them. And that's something all of us can do as leaders is just really seek to understand what is your superpower and how can I leverage it in the organization? And the third thing is regardless of whether you lead people or projects, if you're an individual contributor, all of us can work toward kind of the, the, the way business gets done is in meetings. Used to be live meetings. Now it's virtual meetings, but this gets back to the micro affirmations and the microaggressions if all of us can strive to making our meetings more inclusive, that will foster a sense of belonging. And so what we're doing with our new work and in inclusion is we're targeting, you know, what is it at the executive level that they uniquely can do? Then there's the leader level and then there's the entire workforce because all of us can be part of the solution. Mm, I, I love that. And I love the idea of these, you know, unique superpowers because again, it's another, it's another opportunity. Like when I think of people who do things differently than me, sometimes I see that as an asset. Like, oh, thank God that person can project manage because I couldn't project manage my way out of a paper bag. But on the other hand, often someone is like really into details or really into uh, risk uh, mitigation. And I'm like, oh, they're such a buzzkill, right? They're so <laughs> boring. They're so unimaginative. And to be able to see other ways of being and thinking and other experiences. Um, yeah. And I'm telling you, I, it, it only takes a crisis like the, the, the pandemic to really very quickly identify which superpowers you need to leverage in, your, leverage in your organization to move quickly. And that was well on display in our own organization last year where my my COO is that data and analytic, and you know he knew from a cash flow forecast exactly the impact. Another woman on my team is um, also incredible at process. She looked and mapped the entire universe of every single live delivery we had across the next six months to start proactively figuring out what does it mean for contracts, what does it mean for our ability to deliver on a virtual environment. 
both of those team members have superpowers that I don't have. I have different superpowers, the ability to inspire and create a vision and to see our way out of this crisis and to rally and engage the team. But it took every single superpower on our team to really you know, not only survive, but to pivot, innovate, and put ourselves in a position where we could really thrive in 2021. Right. I think there's an, maybe another challenge when you're looking at you know superpowers is that when we have our unconscious biases, like I'd be like, oh, your superpower is you must be nurturing, right? <laughs> or like you know, there's this all this whole debate. I mean, I don't quite understand it, but sort of around critical race theory and different cognitions and like. You know, there's like, oh, you know, white Western European corporate culture is like logical and and like somehow the people who aren't of that um, heritage are like more intuitive or more in touch with the earth. There's like, like you can get, you know, you can you can take sort of individual truths and really twist them when you're trying to find when you're when you're looking at diversity and then trying to map you know, your map of who people are based on um, those, those categories. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, again, a lot of what we've been talking about a, a little bit, the underlying thread is these unconscious biases that form our, you know, assumptions in the world and our mental models of how the world works and disrupt those. And, you know, it's really hard. And I think there's a lot of effort placed on teaching people how to become aware of their bias, but we also know that that doesn't work. It doesn't work to drive inclusion in organizations. So our shift to what we're calling superpowers in symphony is to really, it's still good to try and be aware of them. It's even better to operate in the world with identifying and valuing superpowers, bringing those superpowers together to operate with this vision of symphony. And so when you think about, you know, the, the grand piano to the flute, as an example, just because the grand piano is bigger or louder or stronger doesn't mean that that piano can fulfill its full potential without the beauty and the simplicity and the lightness of the flute. So it's that space in between that's going to create what we call symphony. Mm. And what we're trying to move away from is um, even the word, if you think about diversity, it means different, like just throwing difference into a room doesn't create symphony. It's the, it's the value and the strength and the honor and the acknowledgement that you place on those superpowers that creates what you want. Right. Well, I think we, we saw that in Google right, when they fired the uh, ethical AI research lead, Tim Gebru. right? It's like, okay, like Google's really good with the numbers. They had, you know, they're good with diversity. I mean, you know, depending on which, you know, division and which numbers, um, but there was no, right? It didn't seem like there was belonging. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, um, there's another interesting part because you said, um, you said something about how to, how to, the assumptions that I make about your superpowers. And there's, there's two sides to this. One is what is length? What is the, you know, what is my talent? What is my passion that I want to put out there in the world? And that's a piece of it. Um, and the other is how is it received by others? And I'll tell you another story. Um, our, our partner in our new inclusion solution called Superpowers and Symphony is a woman named Ashoke Abalu. And she is my new super friend. And we bring very different superpowers to, um, to our partnership. And um, about a couple, last summer, when we were um, starting to explore this new solution based on our latest research, 
she, um, she and I were talking on zoom and my daughter entered. Um, and I said, come here, Madeline, let's, let's meet, meet. I want you to make a show game. She's really important in my life. She's going to be important to our business and she's important as a friend. And so Ashoke looked at Madeline and said, Madeline, introduce me to you using your superpower. What is your superpower? And I could see my daughter, she was 18 and, and, you know, she had this kind of panic look on her face, like, well, nobody's ever asked me that before. And she said, well, let, let me start. She said, my superpower is language. The language I put out in the world is different and people can receive it in a different way. And I said, yeah, Madeline, and I, my superpower is vision. I can see a picture of success. I can rally a team toward it. And uh, I said to Ashoke, I agree your superpower is language. This is how your language has impacted me. She said, I agree your superpower is vision. So ma- my daughter was watching how we were putting out our superpowers, how they were received. And then she jumped in and she said, you know, my superpower is relationships. She says, people tell me everything. They trust me. And so just that, and it took 10 minutes, but the storytelling of superpowers created this different sense of belonging with, with frankly, people like, you know, my daughter had never met her before. Mm, that's lovely. I'm, yeah, I'm going to go try that with people. <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Um, I want to, I want to sort of cl- close with, um, I don't, I think it might be a, a, a difficult question and that's something that I struggle with. Um, so just full, full disclosure, I'm pretty left-wing politically and there's a lot of, there's a lot about, capitalism that I don't approve of. And yet, so here we are, I'm talking to the CEO of, uh, of Linkage, you know, you're firmly ensconced in this system. And one of the things that worries me is that we're, you know, we're sort of filling boxes um, of people who are still going to do business as usual. And like, there's a lot of companies that are harming brown people in the third world that are contributing to pollution that are, that are, like while they're all, you know, maybe being respectful and inclusive within the walls or the virtual walls of their organization, like, is there a way that all this work can make the world a better place and not just improve the bottom line of the organizations? Well, I know without it, without starting from an inclusive inclusive space of bringing the different superpowers together to have a different conversation, to innovate and make decisions in a different way. I know for sure uh, our environment is not going to be saved. I know for sure that poverty is not in hunger or not going to be solved. So my hope and my sense is that as you focus on uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging with an emphasis on inclusion and belonging, better things will happen that won't only impact the bottom line of your organization or our organization, but will allow us to have greater impact on the world. I am a full-on capitalist, even though I do lean a little bit left politically, but the reason I'm a full-on capitalist is because I believe that the influence, the power, the funding um, in the private sector can solve the world's biggest problems, but without inclusion and without belonging, I don't think any of it can be solved. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, uh... Can that be the last word? 
Well, yeah. Well, one last question. You you'd mentioned like how how profitable is the 0.92 uh, coefficient of of, of whatever um, between these inclusionary behaviors among leaders and success of the organization. Why isn't someone like Warren Buffett investing, creating a fund, a mutual fund, or people creating hedge funds? Just based on this, it seems like like when you say when you mentioned like capitalism can fund improvement, like is is there anyone? And I think about this in terms of like my work in in healthcare. Like if there was an insurance company that got it, that would would really fund primary care, preventive care, lifestyle, they'd be trillionaires. And it's, it's, so it sounds like it's the same thing in in this field. Is there any move, money movement? to to push companies to do better in inclusion and belonging? Uh, yeah, there is actually. They have seen, even recently, Goldman Sachs basically came out and said, we will not take any company public unless their board is diverse, unless they're women and people of color on their board. So Europe is well ahead of the United States in this, in this game of really kind of putting structures in place to force inclusion. Now, Again, forcing diversity doesn't mean inclusion. So I want to make sure we keep those two things separate. But you can't have inclusion without diversity. I mean, I guess you can. Uh, like a, a bunch of white men sitting around a table can be very inclusive because they're all the same. So, and I would say Warren Buffett probably is. He may not, may not be doing it intentionally, but he's investing in management teams. Just knowing who Warren Buffett is as a person, my sense is he's looking at the characteristics of those managers and those management teams and he may be unintentionally looking at how inclusive they are. You know, so are they encouraging people to speak up? How do they respond when someone fails? So those are the types of things. So I don't want to say Warren Buffett isn't doing that. He's been a very good investor. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So for, for my listeners who want to uh, find out more about Linkage, about you, you sent me a couple beautiful books that we, did, we didn't get to, to talk about, unfortunately. No, nope. um, we have been talking about them actually. So um, oh, please go to our website. Uh, it's yeah. it's uh, linkageinc.com. Our two books, as you mentioned, are Become the Five Commitments of, pers- of um, Purposeful Leadership. That talks about what the most effective leaders do. It also talks about um, the most effective leaders being inclusive leaders. And the other one is called Mastering Your Inner Critic and Seven Other Hurdles to women's advancement. And that's for women and their allies who want to support the rise of women. So I would love to engage with your listeners and thank you for your time. Great. And yeah, and so point out, like, by leadership, you, you, you say you're talking about the executives, but you also mean all of us, right? Absolutely. Like the world, it's Horton here's a who we're like all of you know, anyone's voice is muffled or missing. We all suffer. You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we define leadership pretty simply. It's um, the ability to shape both the engagement and the activities of others toward a shared goal. And you don't have to be, you know, an executive, you don't have to, you know, be you know, well-established in your career. You know, anybody can do this from where they sit. Beautiful. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. This has been such an uplifting conversation. I'm so happy that this work is being done. And I'm so happy that you're one of the people doing it. And I'm so happy to know you. Thank you, Howie. I've really enjoyed our time together. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you found that useful. I would love to hear your stories. You know, this is all about empathy and listening and learning. And for a 
upper middle class, northeastern, Ivy League educated, um, 55 year old cis white guy like myself. Um, there's a lot of stories that I haven't heard, a lot of perspectives that um, I have to make an effort to hear. So if you have one of those stories, I would love for you to share it either in the show notes for today's episode, which again is plantyourself.com slash four five six. Or if you go there and you go to the YouTube, you can share the comments there. YouTube comments are always a, a fun place to discuss difficult issues, maybe avoid it. <laughs> or you can go to the plant yourself Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash plant yourself. So in movement news, um, definitely seeing some muscles and I moved up in a couple of exercises from 12k to 18k. Uh, apparently my form sucks. But what can you do? I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to enjoy the hurt of weightlifting, um, feeling feeling better. Went for a um, five mile run the other day, slow still. Um, and then the other morning after my workout, after my uh, kettlebells with Monkey Bar Gym Online, I did three miles. So I'm starting to figure out how to combine the two to have both cardio and, and resistance training. Garden news, the new greenhouse is all put together. There's seedlings sleeping in it during the day. Shh. And Mia has been clearing some beds. I have been a wall from the garden, just focusing on finishing the manuscript with Peter Bregman. And hopefully by next week, I'll be able to contribute again. Um, it looks like our pecan tree may be dead. There are no new buds that I've seen, no new leaf growth. So whatever happened to it last summer with the top suckers just sort of cracked and plummeted may have been the death knell. So we are going to be sad about that and have to plant some new uh, fruit and nut trees to give us shade and to uh, to make all the little animals happy. 